You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 366. It's kind of a rainy Sunday in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not sure if the rain has caused the flight path of one of our local airports to change, but there's been a plane flying overhead about every five seconds this morning, so if you hear that, that's the deal. I'm not actually recording on the tarmac at JFK. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. There's a widget for this show. It's a little bit of code that you can put on your website, and it will display the latest episode. You can get it by going to allaboutjazz.com and typing in Jazz Session Widget in the search box. If you need help installing it, let me know. I'd be happy to help you. And if you do install it, also let me know, because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. You can get the newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on the mailing list link at the top of the page. You just enter your name and email. And each week, usually on Thursday, sometimes on Friday, you'll get a newsletter that tells you who's on the show that week with direct links to listen. And there's usually links to things like poems and news about Jazz Session guests who are performing uh, so that you can go see them live. While you're at the website, please become a member. Several folks have done that recently, which is wonderful, and on the next episode I'll thank them. But thank you so much to everyone who's joined recently. Please do join the show. It's cheap. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month, and it makes a huge difference to my ability to feed myself and live indoors. Oh, there's a plane. Please review the show on iTunes. If you have uh, iTunes, even if that's not how you get the show, you can go to the iTunes store and type in Jazz Session Podcast, and you will find it there. And you can give it a star rating up to five. And if you think you might give it a one-star rating, then maybe do something else with the next five minutes of your life. But if you would give it a five-star rating, that would be lovely. And if you write a few nice words about it, that would be great, too. You'll find me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in diabolical. Jason D. Crane. Follow me on Twitter. Join the 225,000 other people who already follow me on Twitter. And that number is only exaggerated by 223,000. I also have a blog and a book. JasonCrane.org is my blog where you'll find my poems and my book, Unexpected Sunlight, my first collection of poetry, which came out in 2010. That's two years ago now. It came out, I think, two years ago this month, which really means that it's time for another book. Today's show features a pianist who, to be totally honest with you, I've only recently uh, learned about. His name is Roman Collin, and I was sent his record, like I've sent so many records, and it was one that just jumped out at me. Um, the playing is great, and the sound is fantastic, and uh, everything about it just really, really struck a chord with me, and so I was very excited to have him on the show. And he's also performing uh, just two nights from now on April 25th, 2012, if you're listening to this in roughly real time, April 25th, 2012, he's got a CD release party, and you'll hear more about that towards the end of the show. And also, information about his CD release is 
in the show notes at thejazzsession.com for this episode. So here's some music from Roman Collins' Palmetto recording called The Calling, and then my conversation with pianist Roman Collins. My guest is uh, the composer and pianist Roman Collin, and he's got a new album on Palmetto called The Calling. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. So I think I told you in an email that, uh, I mean, I get so many records every single week, and I put them in the CD player, and you know, some of them I say, okay, that's fine, and every once in a while there's one where as soon as I put it in, I just don't move again until it's over and listen to the whole thing, and this was one of those records that just grabbed me from the first second. Wow. It's, uh, it's just so rich. It's so smart. Uh, I really like... Uh, the music that you've written for it. And so I thought maybe we could just talk um, a little bit about uh, kind of the concept behind this album, because it feels very fresh, very modern, um, but with some kind of a nod to what's come before at the same time. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's very much the result of um, <clears throat> of me being deeply influenced by uh, very many uh, uh, musical genres. And I started playing uh, classical music when I was a kid, I still do now. Um, I think this is very important in terms of the way I approach my instrument uh, from uh, you know a technical um, and sonic perspective, and also it's also very important to me in terms of um, of writing because uh, the great classical composers have such a deep understanding of um, how to write a piece of music that holds together perfectly and thematically from beginning to the end as opposed to just, you know, sections that would be loosely related to each other. You'd never really see that in, in the music of the great classical composers. So there's that. And, um, and also I grew up, you know, uh, as a teenager listening to a lot of, uh, of rock and electronica music. That's been a great influence on, 
on me as well. And um, and of course, you know, I I've always enjoyed playing jazz, and and um, that's sort of what glues the rest together. So I feel that this record is is very much a um, organic combination of those different influences, and I think that's why it probably has a little bit of a foot in the past and. And uh, maybe a, a, a look for what could be could be coming next. Hopefully, you know, I'll just it's a work in progress. Well, I'm so glad you said uh, the electronica part because now I'm not embarrassed to say the next thing, which is I was listening to this with a friend um, who's uh, in her 20s and who's not a jazz person at all, and she said, "Oh wow, what is this? I I love this record." And then she said, "This reminds me a lot of a lot of my favorite like electronic and video game music." She's a computer programmer. Oh, that's funny. And uh, she said, "It's just got." You know, it has kind of that that feel to it, that very like it kind of intricate, really obviously carefully crafted feel. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I have a, a, a music synthesis degree from Berkeley College of Music, right? Uh, funnily enough, and the reason I went for that major when I went to uh, undergrad school is because I was always drawn to um, crafting soundscapes and the kind of um, imageries that could come from from hearing um, sounds that would be meticulously uh, programmed and 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 crafted like that. So um, that's definitely something that's a big part of what I hear, and and therefore a big part of my music. Um, I've definitely been influenced by bands like Radiohead or artists like Bjork, you know, who have a real. I feel a real intelligent organic integration of music that can hold on paper as in great melodies great form great structure combined with um deep post production and and i think those two things put together already uh, enable them to develop a sound and craft a sound overall that's quite unique and very interesting to me um I think film music nowadays does that too, but it combines orchestral classical music with electronic post-production sound design. So there's a bit of that um, in film music too that I find very interesting when it's done right.
do you are your compositions evocative for you of particular things that have happened in your life or people or experiences is that the is that the wellspring that your compositional ideas come from or um yeah no so on the calling um it really varies from from tune to tune. Some of the tunes were directly inspired by a certain sentiment or a personal experience that I had, um, and some other tunes, you know, were written maybe right after finishing to read a book or watching a movie. You know, um, simple things like that. Really, whenever I feel that it happens, G- generally I feel that the the for me the best writing happens when it just pours out pretty quickly. You mm-hmm. know, if eighty percent of the music has has been sort of um, composed within the first hour that's a good sign and then the remaining 20 percent might take another two months but um but i feel that if it happens like that it's usually a good sign it means that the music came out pretty organically and wasn't forced will you talk more about that editing process about what happens in that two months so once you've ha- you've had this idea you've um, read the book then what happens to the music oh well that's <clears throat> again you know best case scenario i'll just i would just go to the piano and and feel or hear something and i'll just um Almost improvise it and, and listen back to it and fine tune it, put it on paper. And, um, best case scenario, that would be that, like in about half an hour, I have a piece of music. And usually when that happens, I'm, I'm happy with that piece of music and I can connect to it emotionally very strongly. And that really lasts. Um, if it doesn't happen quite like that, um, then yeah, again, it'd be 80% of the music would be there. And then I would feel, well, something's not quite right. I need to, um, work out the overall shape of the piece or maybe it needs an, an extra section or maybe it needs a different kind of intro to set up the mood or whatever and that again could could happen the next day in 20 minutes or it could happen in the next six months very slowly by just i don't know why it is that way but sometimes there's a theme that came out and i, f- I feel it's very strong and really works but to fine tune things around that theme and to make the piece work as a piece sometimes takes a lot longer. And I just, sure. I can't force it. I just have to sort of try the following day. If it doesn't come to me, then I try not to force it because otherwise it'll, it'll sound like it's forced. So I'll just leave it, leave it on its own for a week and then get back to it for another hour, two hours. And then if that works, I'll go for like three, four hours. If it doesn't, then I'll just wait another week and keep going. Yeah. I remember seeing a, a television interview, I think in the seventies with Paul Simon, he was on a, an American uh, talk show playing. I think he was writing bridge over troubled water, but he hadn't actually written the bridge part yet. And so he came out and he said, Oh, this is what I'm working on. And he played the first bit. And now it's a song that, I mean, most people know right. as well as, you know, anything it's a, it's a standard. Uh, but he said, oh, I've gotten this far, but I don't have anything else. And it, it struck me that the things that we, we, the listener, the end product that we hear sounds like, oh, well, it must have all just come as a piece. But that's not necessarily the case. It can come in this process that you're talking about where part A happens and then part B might be half a year Absolutely. later when something intuitively strikes you again. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's the trick is just to wait for that intuition to strike you again, as you said. And, and uh, you know, it's just hopefully being able to access that part of the of our of our mind that that lets us create more freely and intuitively because otherwise it will sound like it's just bits and bytes put together in a orderly fashion but nothing that's super inspiring you know mm. which is what we always want to avoid i think as artists you know
Do you purposely go back to fragments that you started working on and play them again after some number of weeks or months to see, oh, let's see if I can flesh yeah, this out? Yeah, absolutely. I do that. I mean, I, you know, sometimes I'll sit at the piano and I'll have, as you said, a fragment or, or, or a theme, short theme or whatever that I like. And I'll just, you know, record it, put it in my computer. And um, and I know that I, I don't really know yet what this is going to become. And if I don't know that yet, then I don't think I will. So I'm I'm okay to just put like a, a, a you know put in a little playlist in my computer and and then um, sometimes actually leave it like that leave it on its own for a really long time it could be a year or two and then um, and then maybe for another project a collective project or anything that I need to write for I'd be like well let me see what I had and all of a sudden I listen back to a piece of melody and I think oh this is actually really great for that project it's gonna work and so all of a sudden. Just you know, light bulb and and works out fine, and I'm able to finish the a piece of music in that context, which I was totally unable to do maybe a year before in a different context. You know, so I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning about how you feel your classical background uh, influences both your approach, your your melodic and harmonic approach, but also the sonic approach to playing the piano. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I love the piano. I love the piano as an instrument. I think it's incredibly rich, incredibly complex, uh, uh, incredibly deep. Um, I think sound and touch is a huge thing for me. Uh, I feel that so much can be said in one note, and so little could be said with a thousand notes. Um, and I've really um, worked hard on developing uh, a sound that that you know hopefully moves me so that you know I'm okay to play a thousand notes but I want to be okay playing one note I want to I want to know that if I play that one note then the sound that I'm getting out of the instrument is reflects what I'm feeling and um, and it's always a work in progress and it's very interesting because classical piano virtuosi really work on on sound all their lives you know I mean um, sound for a, a, a classical musician is really what a time and feel is to a jazz musician and um, I am by no means saying that time of feel should be disregarded in any way uh, the expense of developing sound, not at all. I just think that to me it's all music and it's all very important fundamental aspects of music making and they should all be considered um, as being equally important. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, from a technical perspective, this is, this is why um, classical music is so important to me, you know, because it develops a certain sound and touch on the instrument.
Is sound important to a classical player because the musical content is so predetermined? There's not there's not really room for improvisation, so to speak. So there there are fewer variables they can adjust in the performance of a piece. Or am I totally off? No, I think that might be true. Actually, um, at the end of the day, sure. I mean, what can um, a classical performer do to really stand out and excel at what he or she does? I mean, I guess it's you know, on a musical, deep musical level, is getting really inside the, hopefully, the mind and heart of the composer to try to understand what the true meaning of the piece was and where it was coming from in terms of um, um, the era it was written written in. And um, um, <clears throat> but also, you know, there's a huge, obviously, a huge technical component to being to to uh, to being a great uh, classical musician, and um, and that technical component. Is mainly, I think, sound, you know, because it doesn't, everybody can play fast in the classical world. Everybody can play fast, but there are those who can play, um, fast while retaining, maintaining a really deep, beautiful legato. And every note really rings. And those who, who, you know, cannot do that so much. So, and I think there's a parallel here with imp- improvisers, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, few people can play a lot of notes and play really fast while still knowing exactly what it is that they're saying and doing. And uh, when they can, then it's, it's amazing. It's great, you know. Um, yeah. Given the nature of the instrument you play, you play the piano, you're never playing your own instrument. When you're playing a gig, you're always dealing with whatever is there at the place. So can you talk about how this concentration on sound gets impacted by the fact that it's a different piano every single time? You yeah, that's a it's a yeah, it's a good question and it's a tough one. I mean, I always envy um uh, you know, bass players although they have different types of uh, <laughs> of uh, of uh, of minuses in terms of, of bringing the instrument, you know, uh, to the gig with airplanes, etc. But yeah, I really envy people who can actually bring their instruments to the gig because um yeah, I mean, different venues have different instruments. Uh very few venues actually have great instruments. Um, but, you know, I feel that if you, um, develop a certain kind of relationship with the instrument and, uh, and a deeper understanding of how the instrument responds and works on a very basic general level, then you will anyway feel more comfortable on, on any piano. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, almost any piano can sound good to a certain extent. You know, very few pianos can sound great. But I think almost any piano can sound good. And I'd like to, my goal is to be able to do that, you know, when I come to an instrument. Because unfortunately, I don't always have, I can't, I can't always choose what instrument I'm playing on, you know. In the moment when you're, when you're improvising, how do you retain that, that focus on sound? Or how do you, how do you make sure you don't lose the, the sonic approach while you're also dealing with having to spontaneously create melody, dealing with the other members of the band, so on and so forth? Um, yeah, I mean, when I improvise, I try not to think about it. I mean, I sure. think this is, you know, this is just something that's, uh, that I, you know, that I practice and it comes from, you know, a lot of things from posture to really just focus and paying attention to what it is that you want to improve on and, and paying attention to that sound that's coming out of the instrument. But I mean, when I improvise, then it just becomes, you know, um, a, a matter of creating music in the moment and reacting to, you know whatever is going on at that very moment sonically and um you know i can't i can't really worry about about technical considerations then because you would sort of destroy a sure. lot of other things in the music you know yeah that has to be ready before you 
get right. on the bandstand. And yeah. if it's not completely, it's not completely, and that's fine. You know, right. I mean, it's just nothing's ever perfect. But sure, yeah. Will you talk about the band on the calling and uh, how you put this group together? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> Lucas Curtis is um, is playing bass on the record, and he's a, a really great friend of mine. I've known Lucas for more than ten years now, since our Berkeley years, and uh, we've had a chance to. Uh, travel the world quite a bit and play in different uh, settings, different bands, and, and my band uh, quite a bit. So he's such such a solid musical player. You know, he, he I feel that he just always knows how to make the music feel good. And in that in that respect, I think he's a true bass player. You know, he plays the bass. You know, and and that's a real. He brings a real foundation to the sound. Um, and he, you know, is the kind of bass player that can be really felt more than heard, hmm. uh, which I feel is so difficult to do because, um, that's something that, um, I think any musician on an instrument could aspire to. Um, I, I sure do. Um, so. And does that allow you more freedom in your left hand given his approach? To the bass? Yeah, he's not a, he's not a super naughty kind of, um, you know, kind of a bass player. Not that I have anything against that at all. I know a lot of bass players who'd, who'd be a lot more all over, you know, more, more over the, uh, the various registers of the bass and, and, and more interactive in that way. And that's, that's amazing too. And it's a different approach. But yeah, I mean, Lucas stays very much, you know, in that, in that sort of, um, low register and, and, and brings that, brings that warmth and, um, and depth to to the overall sound of the band, and that gives me more space for sure. You know, in terms of in terms of uh, the uh, frequency register, and I can dig a little deeper with the left hand. Yeah, mm. and talk about the drums. Uh, yeah, so I have um, uh, Kendrick Scott is playing drums on the record, and uh, I've known Kendrick since uh, Berkeley as well. Actually, he went Berkeley a little before me, but he was still there when I when I first went went to uh, went to school. And he's always sounded amazing. I mean, he's just, I think he's one of the most talented drummers, um, uh, around for sure. He's incredibly sensitive and flexible and, and he just, I think he just has the ability to make everything sound better, you know? And yeah. Beautiful sound, incredible technician as well and extremely musical. Um, and I felt very, uh, fortunate to have Kendrick join the, uh, the band for, um, for the recording. We had, Actually, um, the opportunity to play with that trio at the Blue Note, um, maybe a couple of months before getting to the studio. And, and I felt that, you know, he jumped right into the music and made it sound so good that I, I really wanted to try to capture that on the record. And so then we had like another couple of gigs before getting to the studio. And then, and then that was that.
you uh, you obviously paid a lot of attention to the sound of this record. Uh, I don't just mean the music, but I mean the actual the actual sonic environment of the record. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, Matt Pearson produced the album, which was a great help because he's uh, very meticulous in sound and tracking as well. And we were definitely on the same page. We talked a lot about the concept for the album, and it's obviously not an album that sounds um, like a very traditional uh, piano jazz piano trio record. Uh, but um, Matt understood that perfectly, and and we had a very um, we really agreed on on the overall vision concept for what the the record was going to be sonically. Um, and so from there, I just sort of uh, went with Matt's advice in terms of where to track. We went to a Flux Studio, and um, Meredith was tracking the record, and she did tell a great people job. what tracking means. You might not know. Oh, yeah, we just. Uh, we went to women to, to to make the record in studio. We went to record, you know, the, the band, and um, and uh, we went to Flux Studio. Um, Meredith was um, doing the uh, recording. She was the recording engineer there. She did a great job. Um, we got really, I think, really good sounds in the actual recording and tracking. Um, and then, then after that, uh, that's when I took, I think, three or four weeks to do all the post production. So I went back home and I. And I really worked hard on this because I wanted something that, in terms of sound designing, would support the trio, but not be overwhelming by any means. So I wanted this kind of organic integration into one sound, but it would have to be sort of an extension of what the trio is playing, mm. as opposed to dictating anything. So, so we got in the studio without having any of the sound design being played or anything it was purely acoustic and I really wanted it to be that way I felt that for the record to be as strong as I wanted it to be I needed to have a strong trio performance you know real like three musicians interacting and playing the music that's on paper uh, and then making something more out of this and um, and once we captured that only then did I want to start adding sound designing and, and post-production as an extension of what was captured in the studio. Will yeah. you say more about sound design? When you're saying adding sound design, what are you talking about specifically? Um, well, yeah, I have I have a few um, analog and digital analog synths here. So these are, you know, they are um, synthesizers that I can program, you know, uh, to infinite levels of, of variety and and, um, and shapes and uh, so so yeah I have, I have synthesizers here that really allow me to create almost from scratch just about any sound that that I think is gonna fit you know um, with any specific um, uh, tune or track um, so I, I I worked a lot on shaping and designing sounds for it for each tunes um, and also I added some cello, uh, a few strings and, uh, some, uh, guitar. John Shannon, my good friend, excellent musician, John Shannon, um, also overdubbed, um, touches. Again, all of this is not anything that I think jumps out as a listener as, oh, the strings. Oh, yeah, the guitar. I think a lot of people can't even tell there's guitar at all. There's even a few vocal parts that I, that I added myself and, Trust me, I'm not a singer, um, but it's so processed. It's so processed, and it's so um, you know uh, integrated into the overall soundscape that it really you know doesn't sound much like a vocal or thing or a guitar or anything like that. I think it's um, yeah, that's which I think it. is exciting. I mean, this is the year 2012. I think we should be totally comfortable to use the studio as an instrument and experiment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do that. People have been doing that for a really long time. Sure, yeah, from like from like Steve Reich just doing minimalist Absolutely. music, which is like a tape recorder, you know. Um, 
uh, I think it's an instrument like anything else, whether whether uh, we like it or not. Uh, that needs to taste thing. Some people don't, you know, like to have something that's purely quote unquote acoustic, um, and that's okay. And um, you know, it's funny because I wouldn't touch the piano in terms of how it sounds. You know, that's something that's a sound I wouldn't process. Um, and I, I like to have again an acoustic trio really leading uh, leading the overall sound of of the of the of the project, but. But yeah, I mean, it's something, it's a sound, you know, the, the sound designing, the synths, et cetera, is, is a sound that I think is very much part of, of my generation, our generation. And, um, and it's something that I, I really generally hear, uh, in my head when I create music. So I think it should be a part of it, you know, um, not be overwhelming again, but I think that it's definitely a part of what I hear. And, and given how, how integral the sound design is to this record when you play this music live with the trio how do you have to adapt to the fact that the sound design isn't there in the same way do you do you, for example do you use any of the synths in the live setting how do you um adapt to that i used to actually have uh, a keyboard on stage and and try to add this uh i uh decided not to do that anymore because it really takes me away from creating music uh on a more organic level with the with the you know the trio when I'm on stage, uh, and I didn't really like to have that split attention. Um, but I, I found a compromise, which is that I bring a sampler on stage, um, and <clears throat> basically what what I do is I go back to um, uh, the Pro Tools sessions from you know the, the the record, and I I mute the band, and I just keep um, some of the overdubs and some of the uh, you know the uh, Kind of soundscapes and overtones on top of the band, and I, I, I solo the tracks and uh, and I put them in the sampler and and so on. Some of the tunes that I do live, and I have that running in the background, and it's mm. not time based, so it's really easy. You know, it's just for me to trigger something and sure. And and so and I think it's had sort of the same effect as what we hear on the record, where people feel something and they sort of hear overtones, and it creates kind of a bigger. Um, sound for the band on stage, especially if the room sounds good and there's a good PA, etc. Uh, but they can't necessarily know what it is, and it's not like all of a sudden there's a very synthy sound that jumps out of the tree. It's nothing right. like that, you know. It's pretty subtle, but I feel they still add something. It should be there. And the fact that it's not time-based means it doesn't restrict the improvisational movements exactly. of the band or anything yeah, else. Yeah, it's right? like you know, it's just some, you know, it's it's uh, on some of the sections just going to add a few colors, but the band doesn't really have to worry about any of the stuff that's going on in the background you know i mean when they hear it just react to it a little bit but it's nothing uh contriving in any way
Will you talk about how this record ended up on Palmetto? Yeah, well, actually, um, um, Matt Pearson really uh, helped me sort of shop it around, and and uh, we um, decided to uh, go with the label that you know really had the most heart and passion for the record, you know, which I think is very important. I mean, nowadays, um, more than anything else, I think it's important to be surrounded by a team. Uh, however, how small or how big, uh, but a team of people who are who are passionate about about the record, passionate about what the artist does, you know, and um, and so uh, Pat Rustici was, um, uh, you know, he's he's heading Palmetto, and um, and he really loves it and believes in the project and really wants to push it as much as possible. So that's sort of how that decision decision came about. Sure, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time in the past, but will you just tell folks uh, kind of where you're from and how you ended up? Uh here in Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm from, I'm from France, from the south of France, actually, where it's nice and sunny. Um, <laughs> and so I decided to, uh, come to New York. No, yeah. no, it doesn't really go like that. Um, uh, no, so I, I, uh, I actually left France pretty early. I was 16 years old and I did a bunch of traveling and, um, eventually decided to go to, uh, to, uh, Boston to study at Berkeley and then I spent three years there doing an undergrad and, um, Great experience, you know, got to meet a lot of people and discover a lot of new music and approaches to music, et cetera. And then, um, then actually moved to, uh, to New York right after that, uh, for only two months because, uh, then got in the, uh, got accepted to the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz for the master's program. Um, that was, uh, based in uh, Los Angeles back then. Um, and so I went straight to LA and I spent another two years doing a master's there in LA. And the Monk Institute is where there's effectively a band that has one student on each instrument, exactly. is that right? Okay. Yeah, there's, it's basically one band, um, and it's kind of a funny process where you send out a tape, and if you get selected for a live audition, then they fly you out there, and, and there was, you know, there you are in a small room, and Herbie Hancock and <laughs> Terrence Blanchard and uh, Wayne Shorter are right there just auditioning people and picking, you know, picking up, you know, just handpicking a band. What was that experience like for you being in a room? I mean, these are three... It was great. Giants. I mean, it was the, you know, it was the first time I got to, uh, um, to be, uh, up close and personal, um, uh, with, um, with Herbie. I mean, Herbie has always been such a great influence, of course. And, um, and so that was, it was a bit surreal, you know, um, and at the same time, I just, it's kind of interesting because I felt that the band that they ended up picking sort of had this thing when we played a couple of tunes in front of, in front of, um, for, for the the panel, you know, we had this thing where we're just dedicated to making music. Um, I think we sort of could zone out the whole audition mm. uh, aspect of it, and we just, I, I, you know, I clearly remember that we just decided to go ahead and make music and and do the take care of that first, you know, and then it went well, and um, and the band was really great. We had you know Walter Smith and Ambrose, Akin Misery, um, Joe Sanders, Tim Green. Uh, Chris Dingman. Yeah, it was a wow. set. Yeah. That's a great band. Yeah, yeah. great <laughs> band. Yeah, and no, it was fun. So, uh, you did the Monk Institute, and how long was that? Per? That was two years. Okay. And uh, after that, did you come back here? Yeah, after that, uh, yeah, I came straight back to New York. I just wanted to, uh, you know, I had tried to come to New York once. It didn't last very long, <laughs> uh, before I had to go to the West Coast. So I really wanted to see what, you know, what the scene was like. And, and I'm really glad that I did. I mean, almost all the guys from the, from the Monk Institute did move back here in New York and, um, and so it's great. I'm really glad to be here. Was it helpful having done the Monk Institute? Did that open some doors for you when you came back to the East Coast? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you, 
it's it is such a privilege to be a part of a program like this because you not only uh, get a chance to go on the road and tour with you know Herbie and Wayne etc but you also have uh, the opportunity to study with you know jazz masters basically two weeks a month you know like they would come for a whole week and then we'd have a week off where we're just going to be the band would be on our own just you know writing music rehearsing trying to uh, make a sound you know that's more uh, personal to that specific ensemble etc mm. um so yeah i mean we got to you know i got to um study with you know a lot of masters like you know margaret miller and ron carter and uh Bob Hurst. I mean, I can't even. The list. Sure. It's a long list. We're there for two years, but um, but so yeah. Of course, it's it's such a, a privilege to be able to know these guys and and get to hang out with them for a whole week and really talk about music. And then you come back here. A lot of them are here, and you get to keep in touch and you know show them what you're doing. And um, why was it important to you after finishing Berkeley to continue kind of in an academic setting, even though the Monk Institute isn't maybe a traditional academic setting? Yeah, I think you just said it yourself. I mean, it's not a very traditional thing. The, I wasn't really interested in anything particular uh, in terms of – no, that's not what I meant. I was interested in in, uh, in doing a master's in general. I just wanted to particularly uh, see what the Monk Institute was about because I had heard about it. It was a very intriguing setting. And it felt like something that I could greatly benefit from, mm. which I feel that I did. You know, I mean, it's an environment that really addresses um, jazz from its many perspectives. Um, and, um, you know, every jazz master that came through the, the program had a, had a very definite and different take on, on how we could or should approach the music, you know, and that in itself, you know will inevitably take you out of your comfort zone, which is kind of what I wanted to do, you know. I wanted to really um, explore jazz in as many different forms as possible, you know. Now that you're uh, here playing professionally, how do you continue to push yourself in that way? How do you continue to explore and to find new ways, new places to take your music? Well, I feel that any time I play as a sideman, it does that uh, to a certain degree, you know. Um it almost doesn't matter what the gig is. If you really, I feel that if I really want to play the, this music at its best, you know, whatever the music that's handed to me, mm. then it, you know, it can be a challenge to a certain degree, um, uh, to try to re-understand what the leader is trying to say and what would, you know, how can I make this music sound even better, you know? So I feel that that's sort of my post, postgraduate studies here being in New York, you know, and, um, it's such a vibrant scene. I get called for um a lot of different types of projects and it's it's um um it's really exciting actually you know like somebody calls you and and uh, one day you know it's going to be George Mayer asking me to do some really synthy drone based stuff and the next day you know I'll you know I'll be uh playing a game with Joe Sanders doing like a, a bass quartet thing at the jazz right. gallery which is a completely different thing <laughs> and then then I do my thing and and then, you know, it's, it's, yeah, so I find this really enriching and exciting. And I think this is why I'm in New York, really, more than anything else, is to be able to interact and play with as many different musicians as possible, you know.
people are listening to this, uh, today is Monday, April 23rd, 2012, and coming up in a couple of days, there's a CD release uh, for this album, The Calling. Will you tell folks where that's at? And then there are more all over the world for uh, listeners everywhere. Um, yeah, so we have a, um, a CD release in New York at the Jazz Standard on Wednesday, April 25th, two sets. Um, we'll have uh, Nate Wood on drums and Lucas Curtis on bass. I'm really excited about this. Um, it's going to be a good one. And um, yeah, and then soon after that, I'm doing uh, May 2nd in Paris at the Sunset. And, um, and then at the end of May, I think I'll be going to the West Coast. May 31st in Los Angeles, I think. Uh, we get June 3rd in uh, Auckland. And uh, maybe something in DC further down the line. Yeah. Great. And uh, if folks go to the show notes at thejazzsession.com for this episode, uh, Roman's website is there, and I'm sure all those gigs will be listed Absolutely. on your website. Yeah. Great. My guest is Roman Collin. The new album on Palmetto is called The Calling, and it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. music from pianist Roman Collin. His new album is called The Calling on Palmetto Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks so much to you for listening. Please do become a member. Listening is awesome. Spreading the word is awesome. Retweeting the shows is fabulous. Telling your friends is great. Putting the widget on your website is stupendous. But really... Oh, plane. I'm easily distracted. But really what matters is becoming a member, because that is what will keep the show going. It is literally true that your memberships go directly toward the upkeep of the podcaster program that we have here. And that's primarily me. And uh, if you become a member, it really does help keep the show moving forward and existing at all. So you can do it for as little as $10 a month, and there's levels above that if you can see your way to spending a little bit more. You can also pay in one yearly sum if you'd rather just get it all done with in one shot. That would be great, too. Once you've done that, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Bye.